Turn with me tonight to Acts chapter 13, where we left off three weeks ago. As you know, our format on Sunday nights, and Sunday mornings for that matter, has been different for a few months. We've done a worship series and then worship nights on Sunday nights, and then we've had guest speakers the last couple times. Starting next week, we're going back into going through the Bible, and we're starting with Leviticus. Good old Leviticus. Pray as we go through Leviticus. The spirit is truly willing, but the flesh is weak. But all of God's word is inspired. God didn't write things just so we could go, Oh man, I don't want to go through this. There's some imp- something important that can change our lives. Troy, did you... Oh, do, do, do people get these yet? Oh, Troy is going to pass things that you might already have, but we're going to pass them out again anyway because there's pictures in there and there's people in there that I'm going to refer to tonight whom we met with, missionaries that we support in India. So we're going to pass these around to you now. Take a few minutes to do that. Let's just start our study in Acts chapter 13. Read verses 1 through 3. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laying their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This church of Antioch was a sending church. It was interested in raising people up and then sending them. Not just hoarding all of the spiritual wealth and knowledge. Raising up people who were world Christians. And who would go out to parts that were unreached, even in their own community. Because there's unreached peoples in our own land. To go out and send them out to spread the gospel. To make sure that people heard the gospel. They were a very missions oriented church. And here in verses 2 and 3, as they were ministering to the Lord... God told them to separate the leadership to go out and do some mission work and then come back. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire and it was corrupt. It was wicked. About the same size as Albuquerque and about as corrupt as the United States is. And it's interesting that in this forum of a metropolitan city and a corrupt world government corrupt morals, God raised up a light for the whole world. The center of the church, which at one time was in Jerusalem, now at this time was in Antioch. Antioch became the center of the mission church to the rest of the world from that time on. Jerusalem sort of fades from the scene. And Antioch becomes this sending church, became a light to all the world. As I read these verses, I see a church that was devoted, a devoted group of people. And here in verse 2, they were ministering to the Lord. It speaks of their intimacy with God. Their worship time was dynamic with the Lord. And as they were ministering to the Lord and worshiping the Lord, God said, I want you to separate 
these two men, Barnabas and Saul, now they started the church here, they've been working, but you send them out now. It's time for them to go into other parts of the world and to preach the gospel. And it says that verse 3, having then fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Now, in those days, to go on a missionary journey or to travel for that matter, you'd either have to go by boat or by foot. Which meant months or even years when you go from city to city. Today, with the aid of jet aircraft, high-speed buses, and all the other stuff, we can go to parts of the world in hours. I am amazed to walk into a piece of metal with wings on it. And after a few hours, you go outside and you're in a whole different world. I mean, it's just the amazing concept to get in something and have it tote you all the way around to the other side of the world. And being able to cover city after city in a, in a few weeks rather than in months or in years. And so they were sent out. And they left Antioch. They went through parts of Asia. As they went, Satan was opposing the work all the time. Always bringing people to oppose the work. They were persecuted, beaten, stoned. Paul thought, they thought Paul was dead at one time. He went back into the city and preached after he got up again. And so they went out. And while they went out, many people were saved. People were healed. Demons were cast out. The work of God was being done as they went out and obeyed God following the Great Commission. This is the beginning of sending Paul and Barnabas out. Without going through all their missionary journeys, because you could spend months on it, let's turn over to chapter 14. And look at verse 19. Toward the end of Paul's first journey. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went into the city. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. What kind of a man would be stoned almost to death and as soon as he gets back up and recovers, go back into the city to preach the gospel? It's into the same city where he was stoned. Either an idiot or someone who sold out to Jesus Christ. Paul was a maniac for the Lord. He did stuff that the world would say he's weird. He's nuts. But he didn't care. He was so committed and so sold out to what God had called him to do that he didn't care what anybody thought of him. And he did the things that only a maniac would do or a person totally sold out to the Lord. What was the motivating force? What was the driving force behind a man like this? He was running a race. In fact, we're going to see him use this terminology again in the book of Acts. Giving all that he could, pushing all of his energies into serving the Lord. How can you stop a person like Paul? You can't. Satan tried to hinder the work of the gospel and Paul the Apostle time after time and time again. You know, Paul could have said, well, guy got beaten here. I guess the Lord's just closing the door. I guess I should go somewhere else. He goes, no, there's souls in that city that are going to a literal burning hell. And I'm going to go in there and tell them about Jesus. And he was driven by that and he went back into the city. And then verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city... And made many disciples. 
They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, back to where they started. And they strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So they went right back to chapter 13. Being committed to the Lord, they were set out, and now they returned back to the church that sent them. In verse 27, And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The purpose of tonight is exactly what verse 27 says. Gathering the church together and reporting all that God had done with them. So we want to give you a report on what God has done with us while we've been away the last three weeks. Flying on jets and being in jungles and all those fun things that we want to tell you about. First of all, I want to thank all of you for your prayer support. And I know that many people pray daily. And and your support in every way. Um... We really knew those prayers and really felt those prayers as God moved. God did keep up our health uh, for the most part. We didn't really feel sick. We did have, uh, well, personally, I had diarrhea from the time I got there to the time I got to the United States all the time. But I never felt sick. I always felt great. People say, go, you look like you've lost weight. That's probably why. (laughs) But... We never really felt sick or down. We always had enough energy to keep going on. The Lord preserved us. There were times... I, you see, I've never been in humidity and in heat in the, for, out in the sunshine all day like that with guys who are so turned on to the Lord. You want to just tie them to a wall and say, just rest for a few minutes. But they just nonstop. They keep going. And uh, there, there were some times where we were pretty exhausted to the point of almost collapsing, but... Uh, Through their encouragement and strength and through your prayers, uh, God kept us. So they expounded, they reported all that God was doing with them. And that He opened up a door of faith unto the Gentiles. What I and my wife, my wife and I, experienced in India is probably going to take a long time to, to share with you. In fact, we have lots of slides that we took specifically for the church that will uh, show you when they get developed. But Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys, went into different parts of the world, and each part of the world, each city that he went into, had its own personality. Some of them were very... uh, Like Corinth was a city full of lusts. Uh, Ephesus was a city given to the goddess Diana. But there was a city that Paul went to and preached. And as I read through the book of Acts this last week... I came to a city that Paul went to that reminds me so much of where we were in India. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And in verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. 
And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. When I read about Athens, I think of what we saw in India. And the reason is because in verse 16 it says, And while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was grieved or provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. India is a country who is given over to idolatry, completely and wholly saturated with idol worship. There are Hindu temples everywhere. Just like in America, there's a church in every corner. There's a Hindu shrine and Hindu temple in every corner. They worship monkeys. They worship rats. They worship flies. And they devote themselves. They go in there and they bow themselves on the ground and they pray. And they'll have flower sacrifices and incense sacrifices to their gods constantly. When we went up north, the second day we were there, we went up to a place called Agra, poverty-stricken village. And outside of Agra is one of the seven wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal. All made out of solid white marble. Beautiful, magnificent with its gardens and all it is is a big, it's just a fancy grave is all it really is. It's a tomb. And as beautiful as the Taj Mahal is, it's just a pagan temple where they worship pagan deities. It's no more than a glorified pagan temple. And it was beautiful to see it, but the amount of idolatry that is in India is astonishing. The whole reason for the poverty in India, for the way India lives is a spiritual problem. It's not a food problem. It's not a real economic problem. There's a lot of money in India. There's a lot of wealth in India. It's not dispersed right because of Hinduism. And as Paul was in Athens, he saw a city wholly given over to idols, to idolatry. India has 16 major languages, 500 minor languages, and thousands of village dialects. So to communicate between one state to another is very difficult. And sometimes when we would, when, well, always if I shared, um, there was always an interpreter. If we shared where there was people from other states, we'd have an interpreter and another interpreter. So you'd share in English and then somebody would share in Canarese and then someone would share in Tamil. And there was other people who still had trouble listening because they were from another state. So, uh, you learn to talk slow and just take your time and kick back and uh, get the message across. But it's uh, divided by so many languages and so many dialects. There are 730 million people that live in India. It is the second largest nation in the world, second only to China, only by a few million. And when a person from India tells you about how many people live there, he says, there are 730 million people in India. That was yesterday. Because the population is growing. Each year, 20 million new births occur. 20 million people are born. But 7 million people die, which is an average of 600,000 people per month die in India, usually of starvation or of disease. So that means that the country is increasing in population at a rate of 13 million per year, which is greater than the entire population of Australia. So imagine a country growing every year by adding the whole population of Australia to it. Now, it's only a third of the land mass of the United States, but it has four times the amount of people that we have. 
So it's just, I've never seen so many people in my life uh, walking down the streets, down the crowded streets. And uh, we'll show you the slides and show you exactly, um, you know, the cows and the chickens um, and the buses and the trains all walk together. And, uh, you know, the cows think nothing of just walking right through where a car's going and they stop and it's just, uh, life is all happy and joyful. But um, quite a land. I want to speak to you a little bit about their mentality as far as the gods that they worship and why I think that India is like Athens. When we in the West, and especially as Christians, think of time, we think of, we think of the universe and time as linear time. In other words, the universe had a beginning, it's moving in a progression of time, and it ultimately will end. God will judge the world. And even atheists in the West think of time on a linear scale, that there's a beginning and ultimately there will be an end of some kind and that time is moving in a progression. In India, they don't even think in those terms. They think in time in cycles. And that a person's soul is trapped in eternity. And that you are born and you die and you are reborn and you die millions of times for millions of years. And so that you're born, maybe you'll be born uh, your next lifetime as a fly because you did something horrible as a human. They call this karma. Now we've heard some of these terms before because the United States is becoming very quickly a Hindu nation. We have in New Mexico the temple going up in north called the, uh, that the Sikhs have. You've seen them at the airport and the university, the turbans on their head. All that is is a branch of Hinduism. They're everywhere in India. It's just Hindu pagan religion. And they teach karma. And that you're trapped by your karma. And if you're a good person, maybe next lifetime you'll be born something else. You might be born a rat or a snake or maybe even a cow. And so they have the caste system where that people are born in life in riches or in poverty. And that's your lot in life. And hence, because of that mentality, it is a sin to help someone who's dying on the street. It can destroy their salvation because that is what the gods have destined for that person to live as the rest of their life. And so the whole country has been influenced by that. They're trapped. They don't want to progress. They don't want to uh, have life better for themselves or help other people. It's a sin against humanity and a sin against the gods to change a person's karma. That's his karma. That's the way he was meant to live. And so the whole country has been influenced by this idolatry. I really see Hinduism as oh, so satanically oriented. Human life is, not, is worthless in that country. And that's why it is not a food problem. You could go to India and you could feed him and you could give him a new set of clothes and it's not going to help him a bit. Because the whole country, you could have uh, food programs, uh, land programs, develop the land, teach them how to develop the land, but because of their mentality of the caste system, in a few years they'll go right back into feeding their rats. They have tons of food in the temples, rats will feed on it. They'll starve to death and they will feed their food to the monkeys and to the rats in the temples. They have retirement homes for cows in India. They have no retirement homes for people in India. That's why Hinduism is a myth 
It's a pagan religion. And as it's coming into the United States, especially New Mexico, and all these people are coming over to enlighten us with their pagan idolatry, it's a myth. The myth, they say, is this. Oh, we really place a high value on all of life. And we love every life, human life, the life of a fly. All of God's creation is part of life. And, we, and, we, and they say that, you know, that they bring up the lowest creature to a high level. In reality, with their mentality, what they're doing is taking humans, bringing them to a lower level than a worm, placing higher priority on animals and a low priority, no dignity at all upon human life. That's the lie that Satan has used in such a country, a dark, satanic country filled with idolatry. And the hope of countries filled with Hinduism, the second largest country in the world, is to preach the gospel. Is a spiritual problem. Because when a person receives Jesus Christ, the caste system vanishes. All of a sudden they realize that we're all one in Jesus Christ. Not one is better than another. All need equal love and equal uh, uh, attention and commitment. And so villages that have become Christian had have received the gospel. You find that warmth and that commitment and caring for everyone. Not saying, well, that's just your karma. I'm sorry, I can't help you. And so the gospel has been the answer to such a country. Around India's north is Afghanistan, Bangladesh to the east, China to the north, uh, mostly Soviet communism is pushing down into India. I was amazed as we went to India amidst all of this pagan religion to see a country that was so open to the gospel. So hungry to listen. And we would go out and sometimes we'd uh, set up a little PA system on the streets just in a little village and start singing songs. And people just love to hear music. So they just come by and they kind of just stare at you. And when they stare at you, they come like this far in front of your face and just <laughs> look at you. And they're really, especially white people. We went into a village one day. We were the first white people in its history to ever enter that village. And boy, were they looking at us. <laughs> boy, was I looking at them. <laughs> but we would... We would sing and they would all gather around and then uh, one of the native brothers would preach the gospel to them and uh, we got to share the gospel and just so open and wanting to hear and, and uh, listening to all that you have to say because you know, they don't look at their clocks or their watches and say, gee, I've got to get out and feed the water buffalo or uh, <laughs> nine to five. It's, they've got time, they'll listen. It's a very slow-moving, casual kind of a country uh, which is one of the things I really appreciated about it. And... They were very open, and you have tracks. We go out to the streets and pass tracks out. Hundreds of hands reach toward you. They want to read. They want to see what it says. And uh, you could pass out thousands of tracks, and they're very effective as well. In fact, you'll see some of these tracks. All of them have addresses printed on them. And they said, Skip, this is so effective. We just give out tracks, and in a month we'll get hundreds and hundreds of letters. People wanting to accept Jesus Christ. And so then we'll go into that village and we'll meet those people. And uh, we'll establish a church. But they uh, are very open. God has opened a door. As it says in chapter 14, as Paul went back and reported all that God had done. 
God has opened a door to the Gentiles of faith. And as Paul went into a town, he preached to the Jews who had heard the word of God all their lives and they were saturated with it. They, they didn't respond. As so often in the United States, you hand out a track and people go, get that away from me. I don't want to hear about Jesus. But to the Gentiles, so many of them gladly receive the word. And so it is in countries as such. They're so glad and open to receive the word of God. Well, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out, there was a man among them who was a doubter. His name was Thomas. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail prints in your hands and in your feet. It so happened that Thomas, history tells us, went and preached the gospel in India. As Paul went north and then west, Thomas went north and, and up to the subcontinent of India. And he evangelized India and he was killed as a martyr in the city of Madras in southern India. And uh, there's many stories around Thomas and the work that Thomas did. Soon after that, the church began, well, hundreds of years, around 400 AD, as the church began to be stagnant. And the apostasy that happened with the church in Rome and the church seizing control of the world religion called Christianity and making it the state religion and a lot of the apathy crept into the church. That's what happened to India. So a lot of the uh, traditional churches were established and nobody cared about India anymore until a man named William Carey came and began preaching the gospel in India and a few others. And uh, the sad plight of India is the denominational churches who have started great things and then just slumped into their traditionalism and refused to really go out and propagate and preach the gospel. Because there are some... 27, I think, million people in that country alone who have never once heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're unreached peoples. And the thrust of the work that we are working with, that is Gospel for Asia and KP, is not so much the cities like Calcutta and Bombay, because there's thousands of ministries in those uh, cities, but into unreached villages, little villages that are unreached and, and, and states that are unreached, where no one has really ever gone and penetrated with the gospel of Jesus Christ before. Um, Paul visited some of these villages and towns in Asia. And I want to read a few of these instances here and correlating them with what happened. Turn to Acts chapter 14 and look at verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time boldly speaking in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when violence, uh, the violent, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Now look at Acts chapter 17. One, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as was his custom, 
went into them and for three Sabbaths, three weeks, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Now, these were cities where the gospel had never been preached. Obviously, Christianity was new then. Nobody ever heard of this Jesus. So they couldn't come into a village and say, Now, the Bible says... They go, What's a Bible? You know, And Jesus said, well, Who's Jesus? So they had to start from scratch, testifying that God sent His Son, and, and God's plan, and that God loves people, and His whole plan through Jesus, and how what heaven is, what hell is, how salvation works. And... I had never been around something like that. And these guys were used to it over there. And so, in some of these towns, explaining to them about Jesus, I thought, as KP says, Skip, I want you to preach next. I go, oh, what am I going to say? And I said, Lenny, what should I say? <laughs> and she said, well, you know, Jesus spoke in parables to simple farmers. So, they're simple farmers. Speak, tell them a parable. Oh, great. And their whole village was surrounded by farms. So, uh we got to share with them that Jesus Christ, who was God's Son, He also was a simple person who lived a simple life. And He once told a story about a man who went into the field to plant some seed. And they could all relate to that when we were sharing that. Well, great, because they, sh- they have fields all around them and they plant and they till daily. And we talked about how that the seed fell upon ground and the birds of the air came and stole the seed. But it fell upon seed that there was watered and it was good ground and they took root, but pretty soon the, it got choked up. And we were able to describe to them that when people hear the good news about Jesus Christ, those are the responses people have and encouraging them to open up their hearts. And um, after we shared that night in this little village, we had tracks. People rushed. In fact, KB goes, get out of here, you're going to be stomped upon. And the, the guys sort of set up a barricade as people were rushing on them to grab gospel tracts and to read more about Jesus Christ, to grab New Testaments. They want to know more about this peace, more about this eternal life. They want to read about it. And uh, the pastors of the little local churches were around there to uh, minister to them and to bring them in. Just beautiful openness of the gospel. And then uh, also in chapter 17, let's read a little bit about what happened to Paul as he was in the city of idolatry, a city that had never heard about Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who had happened to be there. And a certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler have to say? And others said, He seems to be proclaiming foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Areopagus saying, May we know what is this new doctrine of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects for your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now isn't that funny? Here's a city and there's gods and idols everywhere, temples on every corner. And they even had a God called the unknown God. 
You know, in case they would miss somebody along the way. They had the God of the sun and the moon and all of these animals. And I guess they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to offend anyone or miss anyone. So they had this one to the unknown God. And so Paul takes and seizes this opportunity to share about the God that they don't know called Jesus Christ. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and all things. And Paul goes on here preaching a glorious gospel. In fact, he says, verse 26, And he has made one, or has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he takes this opportunity to preach Jesus Christ to them. We had an encounter sort of like this. We were on an island, and these islands off the southern coast where we took a boat, and the boat had loudspeakers, and we would go through the canals, and uh, these ladies would sing the gospel, and we were able to preach over the loudspeakers. Then we'd go into the villages on the islands and um, be able to preach, pass out tracts, and uh, saw many people come to the Lord. In one marketplace, we were on one island, and I can't remember the name of it, all these weird names. And this one island has, it's, more, it's the most highly populated area of land on the face of the earth, as far as per square mile. Packed full of people. And as we shared one night, people were, were asking, what is this Jesus? And some of them were um, devout Hindu, really radical Hindus. And they started inciting a little riot out there. Uh, and KP says, oh, there's trouble here. And he says, we have this every time that we start preaching. One of the guys who gets angry at what we're saying gets some of the other guys. And they'll, pretty soon they'll gang up and a lot of the guys have been beaten. And so he looked at him and goes, are you ready? KP, I'm going to get a Coke. I'll be right back. <laughs> the Lord didn't let anything happen, but just you know, to be in a forum like that where people were so receptive, but yet so many of them were hostile because there were new things to their ears, like the Athenians, was something that we'd never experienced. Well, Paul went on his journeys and he preached the gospel into probably all of the known world at that time. The disciples did. And... It seemed that the whole world heard of Christ, heard of Christianity, at least where Paul preached. In fact, concerning one of the churches, he said that the whole world has heard of your testimony. It sounded through Macedonia and went through the whole world, the kind of a church and the commitment that you all live. There was a missionary in China named John Meadow. As he was preaching the gospel in China, this is before, right before the communist takeover, before China became a closed country, which is the danger that's happening to India. And this is what the missionary said to him. Or this is what the communist official told the missionary. You missionaries have been in China for over a hundred years, but you have not won China to your cause. You limit the fact that there are uncounted millions who have never heard of the name of your God. Nor do they know anything about your Christianity. 
But we communists have been in China less than 10 years. And there is not a Chinese who does not know and has not heard the name of Stalin or knows something of communism. What missionaries have failed to do in a hundred years, we communists have done in ten. We have filled China with our doctrine. Now let me tell you why you have failed and why we have succeeded, the officer continued. You have tried to win the attention of the masses by building churches, missions, mission hospitals, schools, and whatnot. But we communists have printed our message and spread our literature all over China. Someday we will drive out your missionaries out of our country and we will do it by means of the printed page. That happened to China. Western missionaries and Christians are completely driven out. It's an outlawed country, as Mark shared with you while he was here. Now, that is the danger that is happening to countries like India, where the communist regime is slowly moving in. And one southern state, Kerala, is already the government under communist leadership. At one time, there were people who cried to the world before China was a closed country, saying, we've got to preach the gospel to China. Nobody did anything. Now that it's a closed country, everybody's going over there, which is wonderful. But why wait in countries that are still open to preaching the gospel when you can have public street meetings? Now, Western missionaries cannot get in to India. Native missionaries can do the work. Western missionaries are not allowed to come in and be a missionary. God blessed me by making my educated profession radiology. So that as I come into the country, they say, Why, what, is your, what is your profession? What have you studied as? I can say, x-ray. And so we were allowed into the country, and we were able to preach the gospel, but they will not allow Western missionaries into India like they used to. Only the native churches can exist. So the danger that has happened to China is happening to India. And so the world must realize that here is a ripe field ready for the gospel that people can go to. And, and we can aid the indigenous national church that is there who are truly on fire for the Lord and get the gospel and then learn a lesson from them and operate the same way in the United States um, in the same kind of a way. Let me share something else. I've got all these things. You see, it's hard to share. There's not really a Bible study, but informing you all that God has done. This is what someone else wrote who was a pastor in Canada. It is wrong, clearly wrong, to ignore nakedness and disease and hunger in the zeal to keep someone from going to hell. But it is far worse after you have clothed them, after you have healed their diseases, and after you have fed them to let them go to hell. And that's the whole reason of the work that's going on in India is that it's not just a social gospel. We're not going to set up a little orphanage and just give people clothes and give them food and say, oh, see you later. Because their souls are at stake. If we realize that there is, and we believe that there is a literal hell that is burning with unquenchable fire, waiting for those people who don't know Jesus Christ, we'd be taking more seriously the commission to the lost world. Paul the Apostle believed that with all of his heart, and he was motivated as running a race to make sure that people heard the gospel. And as one pastor said, we don't have the right to hear the gospel twice until the people in the world who've never heard the gospel hear it at least once. And there's a world who doesn't know or has never heard the name of Jesus Christ who are ready and ripe and open. And we need to be open to that challenge. I'd like to share with you, before we close, a few of the people that we met who are some of the people that we work with. Um, the first few that I'm going to share are not in your brochures that you're opening to. But that's okay, keep them open.
One of the first guys we met was a brother named Stephen. Now, their names are funny because they're not Indian names, at least some of the Christians. That is because most of them were raised Hindu, with names ascribed to them that were names of pagan gods and goddesses. So when they become Christians, they change their whole name because their identity changes. They throw out their old name and they get a new name, a Christian name. This is Brother Stephen. Stephen was a pastor in one of the states called Karnataka in a city of Bangalore where he was preaching. When he was raised, he was raised the son of a Hindu priest, temple priest. When he became 16 years of age, he performed all of the rituals in the Hindu temples. And he's searching for peace with all of his heart. Going through all of the pagan rituals and chanting to the gods and sacrificing to the gods. In his search, he was futile. He gave up hope for peace and he sought to commit suicide. And he put a rope around himself, ready to hang himself, when he heard an audible voice saying, Stephen, you will have peace in your life. And he heard a voice. He took the rope off. He looked for someone and no one was there. Later on that evening, someone came and uh, Stephen was out on the streets of India where most of the people exist. And a guy said, you look so sad. What is it? He says, nothing, I'm fine. He goes, you look so sad, tell me. He goes, I am searching for peace and I want to end my life. I haven't found any peace. And it was a missionary who led him to the Lord and he became a Christian. And he did find peace in his life that evening. When he went back home and he told his parents that he'd accepted Jesus Christ and he wasn't going to serve the Hindu gods anymore, his father thought it was his God-given responsibility to kill his son. So he took out a knife and pursued him to kill him. Stephen fled from his house. He'd never, he's never seen his parents since. That was 16 years ago, I think. Left home and he was out by himself just going through the countryside of India. And he had a Bible with him. And he opened up to Psalm 27. It says, When your father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. From that time on, he says, God, I'm going to give you my life and I'm going to serve you with all of my heart. You're my heavenly father. And I will forsake my family and my family ties to preach the gospel. And being around this guy is real hard to be around him because he he's not a respecter of persons. And uh, he's very to the point and salty. In fact, he doesn't have many friends uh, but he says, he says it like it is. God willing, he'll be here in this next year and he'll share a little bit with us if we can handle it. Uh, <laughs> but just a zealous, on-fire man. The brother that we met with him also, the same evening that spent almost all of the three weeks with him, was a brother named Joy Kudichako. And everybody just calls him Joy. And he has, he's so full of joy. Such a meek and humble, quiet man. Well, Joy was raised in a nominally Christian family that really wasn't sincere, so he didn't do anything with it. He became a communist and later a communist leader and was paid by the Communist Party a lot of money. He had a lot of followers and a lot of power. He accepted Jesus Christ at a meeting and as soon as he accepted the Lord, OPEC in Saudi Arabia offered him a very high-paying job, of which he turned down to preach the gospel, giving up all that he had, his communism and his money to preach the gospel. And then we met a brother named, at the conference the first day, named John Thomas, the same name as John Thomas. And, uh, oh man, without going into detail, one of the things that he has, he has a daily 15-minute radio program 
like we have on KKM. And it's broadcast on Transworld Radio from the south of India, on Sri Lanka actually, and covers all of India. 15-minute program where he just preaches the gospel. And um, people with little transistor radios hear it all over India. Uh, I forget how many millions daily hear his program. He said one day, 12 people, including the head of the family who is a Hindu priest, knelt down as they heard the radio program and received Jesus Christ. Another man who was a Brahmin, the high, the high echelon in the caste system, accepted the Lord. Another man, the same day, heard the program and traveled by train 1,500 miles to be baptized. 1,500 miles to be baptized. And you, you can get into a lot of trouble being publicly baptized in India. Uh, just beautiful things. One of the miracles that God did for us while we were there is the conference that was a five-day conference for all of the native missionaries, all of the brothers and their wives in Bangalore. The week before we got there, there were riots in the city and the government closed down all public meetings. And we needed the government's permission to hold this meeting. And we said, when we got over there, the couple days before the conference, we said, we haven't gotten permission. And these thousands of people are traveling on foot and by train to be there. And uh, the government just said, you know, this is the worst time for you to ask it. There's no way that we're going to grant it because of the riots and so forth. But God opened the doors and they granted it. At the last minute, they just said, we usually wouldn't do this. But they granted us permission and the conference was on. And uh, a time of real strengthening and refreshing. Anyway, you have these little things that we passed out. And these are some of the people that we support. And I want to show you that there are people behind these names and faces. And some of them I met. On the left-hand side of your page, the J. Joseph and S. Rabbi Stanley and Sonny P. Samuel, we did meet. They were still in the north preaching. They couldn't make it to the conference. But above him was Ashok Kumar Harris. And I met with him, and he had such a loving spirit, such a committed spirit. He is working in the southern tip of India, among the college students. He started a Bible study. He goes out on the streets every single day and preaches the gospel with tracts. Uh, he's soon to be married. Uh, the Lord is working in a neat way in his life. Uh, a prayer warrior. Stephen, that I told you about, knows him very personally and says, this guy will spend an hour or two daily for the souls of people around him. He's a real prayer warrior. Now, these are some of the people that we have the God 